Okay, so we are in the final book, or final chapter of the book of Joshua. It's been quite a journey, and uh, as many books end, there's oftentimes a sort of a review or um, a conclusion to it, and, and the book of Joshua is no different. It actually has a very, um, very succinct, um, very notable conclusion to the book. It's even very personal to Joshua, and I thought it was sort of appropriate. It was kind of planned this way, kind of not to come to the end of Joshua here at the beginning of the year, that uh, it gives us a chance, I think, to reflect on, on our uh, past year and our uh, future coming year. It's that time of transition that Joshua is going to speak into as he looks uh, to his own death and passing and the next generation of Israelites coming up in the land. And in the same way, I think here at the beginning of one year, the end of another, uh, we also have an opportunity to look behind and look ahead. So I, I hope that we find some, um, uh, some parallels to our own circumstance here. And uh, certainly as we, huh, I don't know, the past year, the past two years, the past three years has, has been just a complete blur. And I know I need the reminder like here just to review, just to think about what God has done. So with that in mind, I'm not a big re- resolution guy. Um, if, you've, if you've known me, you, you know that. I, I rarely ever make resolutions, but I do like reflection. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to have a five R's uh, reflecting on God's faithfulness to uh, the people in, uh, in the book of Joshua. And uh, ultimately what we're going to see is this very clear message. God is faithful, but we are not. <laughs> and the subtitle to it is, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> That's the way it's always been. God is faithful even when we're not, though we are not, despite us being not, God is faithful. And that is such good news. So uh, here's how we're going to do it. We're just going to take it um, in chunks. We'll get to, I think, um, verse 28 or so. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll read it in chunks. So the, the first R that we have is a return to the place where it all began. A return to the place where it all began. Joshua 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Well, we begin with Shechem. And like I said, this is a return to the place where it all began. Why do I say that? Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. 
Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 1 through 11, you have the creation account. You have the introduction of sin into the world. You have the widespread disease of sin, uh, eventually overcoming the earth to the point where God's only solution was to righteously judge a world full of sin. And yet in his mercy, he saved Noah and his sons and their wives in an ark, And uh, after that, you had essentially the birth of the nations. You had the people going forth from the ark and settling all around the planet. And you have all these nations that are uh, that come out of that. In chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel where the people um, gathered together under one language and banner and rather than using their voice and their energy to worship the Lord, they used it to contest God. And so God graciously, when he could have really sent another flood to, to wipe out these sinful humans who keep just going back to that old grindstone of, you know, it would sure be nice to be God. Uh, Instead of just wiping them out or judging them, um, he allows them to live, but he scatters the people by confusing their language. And you have essentially a lot of descendants that spread out from Babel out into the uttermost parts of the world, uh, creating all the nations as we know them. And from here on out, Genesis 12 on out, from all the peoples of the nations, you, you focus on one man and his children. And essentially that Genesis 12 is, is really the specific story that will um, end up uh, becoming the whole Old Testament. You're following the line of one man, Abraham. And Genesis chapter 12 is where God calls Abraham, um, and he's known at this time as Abram, again, to all the logistics, but essentially God changes his name um, to mean the father of nations. And um, in Genesis chapter 12, verse um, 1 through 3, he gives him this promise. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. It is literally just a promise almost out of nowhere. Again, prior to this, you just, if you were to look at like a visual of the narrative of Genesis, you would just be looking at a globe where people are just going out to the uttermost parts of the world. But all of a sudden you'd be zooming in. Like if you've ever done that on on Google maps. Now that's something I can refer to. Never before were you able to have that kind of imagery, but just imagine the whole globe full of people and just zooming in onto one person. The, the, the text focuses on one man for no other reason, it seems, than that God decided to work this way. He chooses one man and says to him, he makes a, a covenant or a promise with him that he would bless the whole world through Abraham. And it would be through his descendants and through a promise that he's going to keep, a promise that we see in some ways fulfilled in Joshua. Now, what's significant uh, about this is that... <clears throat> Um, what happens uh, just a few verses later, verse six, Abraham passed through the land. So he went, he left his home and he went to the promised land that God had promised. And Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. So this is Abraham moving. And if you look at the back of your uh, of your handout, the journey there, which is taking place kind of in the white spaces, uh, it takes them all the way from the other side of the Euphrates, far east of, of Israel or the promised land. And that journey, he finally gets there and he arrives at a place called Shechem. And there it is reiterated to Abraham, your descendants, your offspring, your children's 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 children will dwell there. Well, that's what's happening in Joshua 24. They're at Shechem once again, the place where Abram built an altar by this uh, oak, uh, possibly a terebinth tree that we'll maybe get into that later. Um, and, and he is now, Joshua is there at the same place, remembering the story of Abram. But it's not just Abram that was there. You go to Genesis 33. <clears throat> Now, maybe you don't remember all the story about Jacob and Esau and their rivalry as twins, but uh, there came a time when they were older where Jacob went to meet Esau and kind of make amends after swindling him, and he was worried about what was going to, to happen. But as it turned out, the Lord showed graciousness actually to him, uh, to Jacob, and they did not fight or battle or anything like that, and they they had sort of a peace between them. And this is how Genesis 33 ends, starting verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Olehe Israel. So here, Jacob, after kind of having a change of heart, he's been touched by the Lord physically and spiritually. Um, he is starting to embrace and understand uh, his part in this covenant that was made with his grandfather, Abraham. And so when the Lord spared him from the wrath of his brother Esau, he, he built an altar at Shechem to remember God's faithfulness to him there. So not only him, but <laughs> Joshua chapter eight. <laughs> and we've already forgotten about this. At least I have like, oh yeah, they, they did this in, in Joshua's time. So Moses had commanded uh, actually in Deuteronomy 27, that the people, when they arrived into the land, um, that they were going to camp at a place where there's going to be a huge mountain, not a huge mountain. They're like hills compared to when we think of the mountains, we think of, you know, towering, you know, 8,000, 10,000, 12,000. We're talking about like these hills over here in uh, San Diego, the San Diego Hills. So they're not super tall, but um, they were at a place where on one side was this mountain called Mount Ebal and another one called Mount Gerizim. And if you remember from this morning, we talked about that a little bit. But in any case, they were to camp there once they entered into the promised land and half of Israel would be on one mountain, half of Israel would be on the other mountain. And one side would yell the cursings of disobeying God's law. And the other side was going to yell the blessings for obeying God's law. And this was to be a reminder. This was to, to say, we understand fully the contract that we're making with God at this moment. Um, 
Like, I, I don't know how many of you actually read those end user uh, license agreements where it says you got to, you know, check this to say that you've read and accept all the terms of it. Now, if you're like me, I just zip, <laughs> scroll down and I hit accept. But see, God made them recite like the end user license agreement to each other so that they could hold each other accountable. You heard it. You said it. I heard it. I said it. We are accountable to this. Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, the town that lies in the middle of those two mountains is Shechem. So um, Shechem has covenant history to it. From where they were now, they could see the mountains where they stood, you know, decades before, because this is happening now many years, decades after the, the conquest was over. Here they were standing in the spot where you know, me or my, my parents, they stood on that mountain. I remember I was a kid and, and mom and dad were on this hill and then my, my uncle or cousin or whatever was on that hill and we, 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 we yelled, we screamed the covenant promises and cursings to each other. So from Shechem, you could see that. It, it was just this visual, stark reminder um, of those words they uttered, com- uh, proclaiming judgment, if we disobey, blessing, if we do obey. And there they were also next to these altars built by Abraham, built by Jacob. And then Joshua also built an altar there. If you read Joshua uh, 8, and there's this old oak tree or possibly a terebinth tree depends on on, on the word in Hebrew, it can kind of go both, both ways. But you have this old tree that's been there through it all since the time of Abraham. This is a historic place. This is a place to, uh, that they return to in order to remember their history together as a people and to have solidarity with that, that history. Uh, it's, it's sort of like um, when, uh, when, when they... Um, it's well, sort of like the White House when they sign uh, laws and things there. There's a symbolicness. It, it ties when when the president signs a law there. It is tying into all of American history. You know, hundreds of years of American history. Now I know the White House was I think destroyed. I forgot by the British or Canada or something. They rebuilt it. But the idea is that that place is symbolic of of history, and it ties and unites all the promises that have been made through our laws and our legislatures. That's what it's representing. Well, it, it's kind of that feeling of of history and connection. Um, it's a place that you don't. At least you don't intentionally try to dishonor the kinds of oaths that are made and promises that are made there. It's, it's like that. Um, and so this is where Joshua returns to. At the end of his life, um, there's no place where he is commanded to do this. Now, remember, Joshua, he did whatever Moses had commanded, meaning whatever God had commanded. There are some times where, you know, it seems like Joshua makes his own um, initiative. But here it says Joshua gathered all the people. So this is something that um, he had an idea about, and he is going to represent um, the commands of God, um, you know, maybe taking his own initiative. And he wanted to do it at this place that had a lot of history behind it. Um, You know, just, I don't know that there's, you don't need to go to Shechem, you know, to, to make a promise or oath to God. You can do that wherever you are. But there is something to say about, um, about record keeping, 
about knowing your history, uh, about us caring about, you know, we're, we're, we're the oldest church in Irvine, and we've been here for 90 years and wanting to faithfully carry that. Uh, there is a sense in the whole Bible of, of feeling the weight of history and wanting to pass the baton from one generation to another. So it's very deliberate um, and intentional statement that, that Joshua is making to do this here. Um, and there's a value to that. Um, and there's a value to, you know, going back and, and looking at pictures, looking at old journals. I'm not the type, again, to make resolutions. Um, but if you, you are into doing that, I suppose it'd be like recording yourself making a New Year's resolution, and then finding it a few years later. You know, it's like that feeling. And when you look at it, are you going to be embarrassed and ashamed because you totally forgot that resolution? Or are you going to say, you know what? I I did keep that this year. Well, it's kind of that feeling. They're there, and everyone should have this sense of, of, oh, right. You know, what are the promises that we made as a nation? What are the promises we, we made to each other, you know, just a generation ago? So, Shechem represents a return to the place where it all began. Joshua immediately goes into the second R, a remembrance of God's faithfulness. He talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just as I brought to you. Talk about Moses and Aaron. And just to give you a sense of the time frame, Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, that's roughly 2000 BC. Um, and uh, the time here now of Joshua is about 1300 BC. So you're talking about 700 years of history. He's going to kind of compress. That's two times, uh, you know, the history of America, which we already have forgotten, you know, anything that happened in the time of uh, JFK, let alone George Washington. But just imagine your history goes back another 400 years beyond that. But there's a regularity to remembering as you read even the first five books of the Bible, let alone the whole Old Testament and New Testament, it's important to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Now, I want you to notice something here. He is speaking um, on the behalf of God. You know, Joshua said to all the people, thus says Yahweh. So the first person here, I, is not referring to Joshua, it's referring to God. Notice all of the I's here. I took your father, Abraham, and I led him, and I made his offspring many. I gave Jacob, um, uh, and to e- uh, Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country. Um, I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And after I, I brought you out, going on. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to Yahweh, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, 
which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Who gets the emphasis? Who did it? For 700 years of their history, who was acting? Who was faithful? Well, clearly it was God. God is the one who did it every step of the way. He is the one that gave a promise. He's the only one that can give children. He's the only one that can give land. He can, the only one that can give victory. He's the only one that could deliver from the slavery in Egypt. He is the only one that can do all of these things. No single person could just for the fact that, you know, these are hundreds of years of, of time passing. Only God can do it. They needed to desperately look back on their lives and the lives of the Israelites and see not their story, but God's story. Of course, I I think that's a valuable lesson for any of us. When you look back on your life, I think it's very helpful to think this is God's story, not mine. Because if it was your story, you would have written it differently. You would have been some, you know, uh, some, some celebrity or some athlete, you would have been rich and famous and, and good looking and all these things, right? If it was your story, you would have written it so differently, I'm sure. And, and you would think it would have been great and wonderful. But uh, if you know anyone that is in those positions of power or wealth or celebrity, how many of them really, when you look at their lives, really do you envy? So it is not our story, It is not that in Genesis 12, it's now a story about Abraham. It was and is and will continue to be into eternity a story about God and his story. And if if you are comfortable with that, if you can rest in that, then you can look back and it doesn't matter what trials and tribulations were in your past, what hurts and pains and sufferings, what, what heights of joy and what depths of depression. If you really believe that it's God's story, and that there is meaning and dignity and honor to every moment of it, you can live with yourself. But if it's, if it's your story, if it's about you, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to look at 2022, and you're just going to feel sorry for yourself, or you're going to see all the missed opportunities, or you're going to see the wasted time, you're going to see the, the heartaches and the woes and the sorrows. I mean, I, I, frankly, I, I think... Um, that's what I've been doing. It's like, man, 2022 is kind of awful uh, for a lot of reasons. And I, I, I know I have been woe is me. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of you in a while, but if you talk to me any amount of time uh, towards the end of, of last year, you probably hear me at least kind of uh, complain a little bit about the year. And yet I'm so convicted by the thought, but what if God was doing something? <laughs> what if it wasn't about me? <laughs> What if God was trying to, 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 to build something in me or build something in someone else? If it's actually a story about God's faithfulness and not my own. And it should be an obvious truth. I mean, you look at Israel's history. If you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like this is obviously about God. I mean, it's not about how great Abraham is or Isaac or Jacob because they all screw up a lot. Uh, it's not about the Israelites. It's not about Moses or Aaron. They, they all screw up too. It can't be about them. It's always been about 
God. And, and that's what Joshua wants them to remember there at the end of his life and at the transition point is that God did these things. And, and it's kind of interesting because um, and each of the individual stories there are very fascinating. I, I know I'm not talking about like Balak and Balaam. And, and actually, if you notice, like the whole Egypt thing barely gets like a, a sentence or two. Um, you, you actually don't have any mention of, um, of Joseph and, and all of that. So he's definitely kind of shorthanding all of it. So I'm not going to you know, get into the whole book of Genesis, which is what he's, he's doing there. But um, notice that he says, your eyes saw what I did. Well, in Egypt, but they didn't. <laughs> Maybe Joshua did. Um, and Caleb, if he was still alive at this time, and I think there might have been some Levites or something, but most people did not see what God did in Egypt with the plagues and, and the parting of the Red Sea. Remember, they died in the wilderness. But when he says, your eyes saw it, notice how strong is that connection to their history. For their parents to see it or their grandparents to have seen it was, was like them seeing it. That's how strong God's covenant promise is, is, is that um, they are a part of it and a testament to it no matter how many generations have passed. And in a way, again, as we think about you know, some applications for the church, we're a part of church history. 2,000 years of church history, or of course a part of this history too, but when we think of the church, like we're part of a history too. Talked this morning with the kids about the invisible church. That is the church of all the saints around the world um, that, that were, have gone on past, that are now, and that will be. Like we're connected to all of that. And what, what Christians have learned over the millennia and testified to, we're a part of that. And we should see ourselves as a part of that um, story as well. So another angle to the idea of like, this is God's story and not your own. It's also the story of, of the church, of other people, not just you. You are going to be blessed and, and, and um, you'll be carried through by the faithfulness of God for sure. Um, but he's also doing something in other people's lives too. Sometimes through you, sometimes through your sin, which is really sad. Sometimes through your suffering, other people are blessed. But there's a big picture, in other words. And Joshua is trying to get them to see over and over again, who did it? God did it. Whose story is it? It's God's story. And it is all of grace. That's how the section ends, is that you ended up in a place where I gave you things you didn't even work for. You didn't even deserve it. And I gave it to you. If you trust that it's God's story, you also are trusting that it's going to work together for good. Or as the New Testament puts it, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That it's the second R. The third R, the resolution made. These verses are probably the most well-known verses of the book of Joshua. Maybe top 10 in the Old Testament. Verse 14, Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will 
serve Yahweh, serve the Lord. This is Joshua's resolution. And you know what's funny is it literally just struck me. I didn't think about this until I was sitting there um, in the chaos of trying to wrangle Ezekiel. Joshua is making this resolution pretty much at the end of his life. You know, this is not him as a young man, like Jonathan Edwards in his teens, writing his, his numerous uh, resolutions. This is Joshua as an old man saying this commitment. Like, it's as fresh and necessary for him to make this uh, uh, conviction known at this point in his life, you know, very close to death, as it was when he was a young man maybe even a child. It was just that important for him to say this. I don't know why. It just struck me that uh, he's saying, I don't know how many days I have left, but we are going to serve the Lord. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord to the end of it. That's really the sentiment that's there. Now, what you often don't see when you see this hanging in, like this is where I've seen it. It's this, you know, in a, like a, on a placard, you know, hanging over a frame, a door frame in a kitchen or, or over a window or something. As for me and my house, we will serve uh, Yahweh, which is a great statement. There's nothing wrong with it. But you know what the emphasis is in verse 14 and 15? It's an accusation. <laughs> it's an accusation of the Israelites. His conviction, his resolution stands in contrast to where the people are. There's not maybe, I put here just there's a hint of an accusation isn't there, but there's more than that. Why would he have to say this unless it's happening at that moment that they are making a choice, a wrong choice? He uses two commands here. Therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him. Why these commands? Why not, therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You know, Deuteronomy 6. Why not honor the Lord your God? Well, it's not that it's obviously a a mutually exclusive command to fear the Lord and love the Lord because we're commanded to do both. You can love God and fear God uh, at the same time. But clearly, Joshua is trying to emphasize that the, the Israelites, they've lost a fear of God. And instead of serving him, what were they doing? It's, just, it's, it's, gonna, it's, it's in between the lines here, but it's going to be blatant later. They're serving other gods. And how can you do that without having an absolute lack of fear of God? Because remember, the whole history... 700 years of history that Joshua's just really kind of, you know, glossing over very quickly. And yet every Jew would know that history because it had been passed on very faithfully. It was in, uh, written down at this point for them too, that their whole history and the lives of the patriarchs and everyone after is a story about how God judged sin, brought condemnation to the wicked. And really he was a very a just, righteous God. He was merciful too. Yes, again, you can fear and love, but, but Joshua's pointing out, you don't fear God. How can you think about what God did to Egypt? How can you think about what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah? How can you think about what God did even to his own people when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai and they were worshiping the golden calf and you know the, 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 the ground opens up and all these things? How can you forget Achan? And how he stole uh, some of the, the loot for himself. And then he and his whole household were, were killed. How could you forget that God is a God to be 
feared because his judgment uh, is as much a part of his character as his love and his, and his mercy. How could you go on and be so fearless when it comes to God that you would serve these false idols? The reason he then says in sincerity and in faithfulness points out where their heart really is. Jesus uses those words because the people think that they can get away with what they're doing. They think they can give Yahweh lip service and he won't notice or that Yahweh will be satisfied with just a little bit of devotion. That'll be enough. Or maybe perhaps worse that they think their sins are hidden from God, that they have somehow successfully hidden it. That's why he says, you got to fear him and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness because you cannot fool God. God knows if you're faking it. He knows if you're insincere. He knows if you're trying to hide something. Again, the stories of the patriarchs, the stories that that Joshua just glossed over kind of quickly from Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, they point to an omniscient God from whom nothing is hidden. There's no point in being insincere. You can't cross your fingers behind your back and make you know, a nod to God, okay, yes, yes, yes. You can't trick God like Jacob tricked Esau. God knows everything. He knows if you're being insincere. So fear Yahweh, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. There's an accusation there that you're not because he says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. That's a command too. What does that imply? I mean, we'll get, we're going to expand on that in just a second, but he's saying, you, you guys are even now worshiping idols. Going back, when it says uh, beyond the river, that's talking about the Euphrates. And that phrase is only really used of the time of Abraham, when he was worshiping pagan gods on the other side of the Euphrates, so far away with his, with his family, with his father. He's saying from that point till now, 700 years, those gods and idols have been a temptation to you. Still. So he's talking about gods from the past, you know, false idols from the past, false gods, and from the present, the the Amorites who are the ones who dwell in the land or dwelt in the land at that time. That you have been basically, it's not just a geographical statement of like you're worshiping, you know, you're the type to worship gods from way over there and way over here, but even a time thing. Like you're 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 still willing to worship gods that your father Abraham abandoned. He left those gods and here you are still scrambling back hundreds of years to worship them. It's silly. Abraham was called out of that paganism, out of that idol worship, out of following false gods. That's a story again of the patriarchs and consistently throughout the whole Old Testament really is God is in the business of calling you out of that pulling you away from that, taking you out of Egypt. And yet the people were constantly falling into it. Hundreds of years falling for the same temptations. That's what you're supposed to think is Joshua is a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit frustrated. I think it comes out a little bit more later, but it's the the thought of like, how could you have fallen into this over and over again? Not just you guys, but you know, when I look back at the history, we've been doing this for a long time for hundreds and hundreds of years. Of course, a threat to any resolution, New Year's or not, is falling into the same habits 
that you had before. You know, that, that's what happens. You make a resolution, and if you don't actually do anything different, what's going to lay hold of you? The, the way you were doing things back in 2022. Now, before we get too judgmental about those Israelites, yeah, they've been making mistakes, the same mistakes for hundreds of years. You know, we're, we're not too much different, are we? <laughs> are we? Like I said, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the type to make resolutions because I kind of know myself. That's just not how I, how I happen to change. So I'm not trying to say all resolution making is bad or that you shouldn't make them. Um, I actually have been very profoundly influenced by, by Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. But I'm just not the type to do that. Um, but I, I think before we get too quick to be like, yeah, those silly Israelites falling into the same thing, the same habits, the same sinful temptations over and over again, just stop and take a minute and realize that's probably true for each of us too. Now, to be fair, to be fair though, it's worse when they do it. Why? Why is it worse when they do it? Because it's not just because they've been making the same mistake for hundreds of years. It's they've seen in like uh, full color HD the consequences, both good and bad, for obeying and for disobeying. So think of it this way. Like, you know, say you had a resolution maybe to, to stop drinking, if that's your issue. Well, you know, some people are not, you know, some people are just going to say that. They're going to make no plan to change in the first uh, party or whatever. They're going to start drinking. But imagine if in 2022, you had several close family members die from drunk driving, alcohol poisoning, something alcohol-related. Say that in 2022, you, you, you had a friend that quit drinking and suddenly became very successful and rich and got his life together. See, you would have had positive and negative examples of, yeah, I, I really should stop drinking. I don't want to die or kill someone. And, and it sounds like if, if I save that money, I, I could actually do pretty well for myself. Um, it's more like that. And maybe that's why um, it's a little bit more frustrating for Joshua uh, because the Israelites had that. They had very vivid, positive, and negative examples, and yet they were still tempted to fall into their old habits. But again, we want, we want to be careful to judge too quickly. There are, I know that probably the, most, the more relevant um, kind of example is I've known uh, many who, um, who basically had to change their diet and their lifestyle, the doctor said, or you're going to die. You know, they, maybe they had a heart attack or maybe they had some kind of disease. And the doctor said, look, if you don't change, you're going you're gonna to run yourself into the ground. And you know what some people do? They don't change. <laughs> so even when death is staring in them in the face. So you don't want to get too judgmental about the Israelites because we're looking in a mirror. But we can understand the frustration here. And that's what Joshua is essentially pointing out. His... Um, is, is he's saying, I can only speak for myself here. After decades and decades of leading the Israelites, representing them to God, being God's representative uh, to them, at the end of his life, what could he do? He could only speak for himself. It's for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It's an oddly personal statement to make, but it sends the right message to the people. My convictions are not your convictions. You have to have your own. My resolutions cannot be your resolutions. You need to have your own. Or another way to put it is, I can't live your life of faith for you, is what Joshua is saying. That's sometimes a struggle when you have really good or really strong leadership is you can start to think that um, I can ride on the faith of someone else. That's the temptation that can occur. 
But it's a very humble and, and very humbling statement for him to say, listen, everyone, I can't live your life of faith for you. Here he is saying, put away those false gods. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. When I stand before God, I cannot plead for you that he will let you in. I can only vouch for my own faith, my own household. And so we have here Joshua's resolution um, standing in contrast to theirs and, and perhaps a few thoughts there for our own uh, commitments and convictions. Fourth are their response, their response. Oh boy, <laughs> the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods for it is Yahweh our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and, and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And Yahweh drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve Yahweh. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Yahweh, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. This is such a fascinating statement because on the surface of it, it looks right. Their response seems correct. They acknowledge that Joshua, you're right. Your assessment is is correct. They acknowledge, yes, it is God that has done all these things. They even seem to acknowledge what they should do. So what's the problem with their response? Because clearly Joshua doesn't buy it. What is it about their response that is troublesome to him? Well, there's, there's, there's three ways to know that. I'm, 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 I'm realizing something here that um, just in that response alone, therefore we also will serve Yahweh for he is our God. There's two words that are a problem there that reveals something to Joshua that makes him say, nope, you don't have it. It's will and also. What does will say? Will says, I'll get to it. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'll go to the gym tomorrow. <laughs> you know, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to stop eating junk food. I'm going to hit the gym and I'm going to start tomorrow. <laughs> There's also the phrase, also. What is that saying? Well, I'm going to, well, no, no, trust us. We are going to serve Yahweh, but we're also going to serve those other gods. You know, there's, there's compromise there. There's a, a half-heartedness there. There's, there's something that kind of um, doesn't go all in, does it? Now, more specific, because that just, you know, that, that kind of a just 
occurred to me there. But um, Joshua's response is, is more specific. And it gets to those points, it, it does, um, is that he says in response to that, you are not able to serve him. Why? For he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive and he will turn and do harm and consume you if you forsake him. So what, is, uh, what does Joshua's response tell us about what was lacking in their response? Beyond just kind of those two clue words, will and also, uh, what is it about Joshua's response specifically that clues us into the problem here? Well, um, the people don't know God. That's the, that's the real problem. They don't really understand God. They don't understand basic things about God. He starts off with one of the most basic statements of the Bible that even, you know, most, uh, you know, pagan people would understand this phraseology and, uh, you know, non-Christians and atheists, like God is holy. <laughs> He's holy. He has to tell them something as basic as, you know, God is holy, right? Your, your problem is you don't understand something as basic as God's holiness. Now we could make a whole sermon about that. But, um, you know, I'm going to put it really, really simple. Just know that there's, this is just the hopefully beginning of your thoughts on, on this and uh, not the total package. But God, the very essence of holiness is a separation and a distinction. In other words, God is not like anything else that you have ever seen or heard of or thought of. He is beyond anything in this creation. He is distinct and separate. He is an entirely of an entirely different order and being as anything that we have ever witnessed or seen. His, he's holy, meaning that there is something about him that is just untouchable and ungraspable. It's, it's not that God is some old man sitting in a throne with a big flowing white beard in heaven. That's Zeus. God is not that. He is on a completely different level of things. Of course he gets to make the rules. Of course he gets to determine all things. He is this creator, completely unlike us. And so for a person to have a false idol or God in their hand or in their house, it is a complete lack of understanding of who God is to say, oh, this could be God too. I mean, look, it's, you know, it's got, you know, it's like, look like a little goat. I mean, it, it is a complete blasphemy to take a holy God and say, here he is in the palm of my hand. It, it, it's utterly blasphemous. It has no acknowledgement or understanding of, of who God is in his character. To say that he's a jealous God is to say they don't know about his desire, his will, his purpose. It, jealous doesn't mean um, petty or vain, <laughs> the way we kind of uh, view that word uh, jealous. This is simply God's desire and will and purpose to be acknowledged as God. He is God and everything he does is sort of centered around knowing God, uh, understanding God, acknowledging who God is. 
Nothing else should be, you know, equated with God and he should not be brought down to be like anything else. So his jealousy is not like, um, you know, that, that emotion when someone has something that you want. It is God's very desire to be acknowledged as God. That's his reason. That's, that's, that's who he is. That's part of the definition of God is that he's to be known as, as God. How could it be otherwise? Now, these false gods, again, and idols, they were essentially petty and capricious and vain and jealous in that kind of, um, you know, watch a, you know, a, a reality TV show kind of jealous and just as sinful as the sinners who worship them. How could they confuse this? It is so basic. They don't understand God. That's why they can't serve God. You don't even know what he's like or what he wants. You cannot possibly please him. And, and that's why he says, if, you for, if he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins, that seems almost offensive to us because we're very familiar as you know, Christians and living on this side of the cross. Like we're, we're the forgiveness people. How could you say, Joshua, that God doesn't forgive sins? Uh, of course he does. Of course God forgives sins. There's an entire sacrificial system in the Mosaic law. You get the whole book of Leviticus. It's not like Joshua suddenly blanked on uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices and the feasts and all that. No, of course not. It's not like he suddenly forgot that, oh, wait, I kind of goofed there. God, he does forgive sins. No, what he's saying is there cannot be forgiveness where there is no acknowledgement of sin. How do I know that there's no acknowledgement of sin? He didn't say it that way because there's no acknowledgement of God. You can't acknowledge, you know, sin if you don't know who and what you're sinning against. And they're so lost, they don't even know who God is almost. It's like he's talking to a bunch uh, of pagans um, for him to sort of reiterate these things. And it's sad because I think, I think almost he really is. But no, you can't have a conception of sin without having a conception of God. Because if your God is small, guess what? Your concept of sin is also small. If God to you is just a slightly better version of yourself and your morals and ethics and so on, then I'm already almost as good as God is. So, you know, how bad really is sin? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of there. I mean, he's just, he's just doing what I, I think and believe, but it'll maybe a little bit more consistently. There's no sense with the Israelites that they really understand who God is in their response which means they couldn't really understand how wicked their sins are. And then again, to connect to this morning, the purpose of pointing out sin is to point people to God, who he is. Why would I tell people they're a sinner and not make any connection to a holy and jealous God? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Now I'm just talking then ethics and, and morality and, and values. I'm not talking about that which keeps them from knowing and understanding and having a relationship with God and seeing their need for forgiveness. I can't just say you're sinning. I have to talk about God. And that is where they are lost. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's like. They don't know what he requires. And the people in Joshua's audience are not thinking about God. That's why Joshua has to point this out to them. Now, how should they have responded? Because the way they basically go about this is, no, 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 no. We, 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 I get it. Yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 serve, we'll serve Yahweh. And Joshua just keeps not buying it. How should they have? You know, this is a little bit of a thought experience. How should they have? What should they have done? Um, I mean, 
I, I think they should have at that very moment gone and got rid of their idols because he said it two times already. Uh, understand that when he gathered them there at Shechem, they were all over, you know, you look at the maps and we've been looking at uh, maps of, of the promised land. They came in from all over, right? Because he's gathering them from all over the promised land. They're all coming there. It's a road trip. It's a journey. What does it mean if he's telling them right now, put away the foreign gods? What did they bring with them on this trip to Shechem where they're going to renew the covenant? What did they bring along with their baggage? They're false idols and they're false gods. It's almost unbelievable. Um, it's ironic because there was a time in, in Jacob's history when he came to Shechem and God called him out of Shechem. This is in Genesis 35. I didn't want to necessarily spend time there. But basically God says, you need to go. And um, you need to leave all the false idols and stuff you have behind. And they buried them in Shechem. So literally standing over uh, false idols and gods that their forefather Jacob had buried in order to go obey God. And here they were, and I almost... I'm almost concerned, let's say, that at that very moment, even, as they were gathered at Shechem, it just wasn't that they had the foreign gods in their tents, you know, where they had set up camp, but even at that moment, as they stood in the place where God uh, asked, you know, where they shouted the, the cursings and the blessings, that they had jewelry, you know, earrings, they would sometimes have earrings and, and bracelets and, and things that they were even at that moment that Joshua could see them wearing had those false, you know, idols or, or references to false idols and gods on them. And they're saying, no, 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 we'll serve Yahweh. For it, it's, it's like a, a man coming to an AA meeting to swear off drinking and he's got a bottle in his hand. At that very moment, like, I don't know how seriously I'm going to take that commitment that you're making. You got the bottle in here. No, 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 no. This is going to be my last one. I promise. You brought it into the meeting with you, though? I mean, it's just as ridiculous. And yet, if you know the story of the Israelites, it's like, yeah, they're kind of the type to do that. And you know what? Again, before we get too judgmental, we got to put up the mirror. I mean, are there not times where you've come into church and you knew there was sin in your heart and you came, you took communion or you sang the songs and you weren't really all there in your sincerity and faithfulness. I mean, I, I know I have too. So before we get a little bit too judgmental about the response, it to take a moment to reflect, but it's bad. I mean, it's bad for them to do it. It's bad for us to do it. But I just imagine Joshua because uh, he specifically had the leaders in front of him. You look at the beginning of Joshua 24 and I'm just imagining like he, he's in a, a group with them and he's looking at these so-called leaders and they've got, you know, the, the earrings that denote some other God, you know, and he could see it and they're telling him, no, 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 we will, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely serve him. We'll put it away now when they should have at that moment. And I think that the right response would have been at that moment, their response should have been, you're, I can't believe I'm doing this. You're right. I, I got to take all this off right now. Lord, forgive us. How could I forget your holiness, especially in this place where God, you showed us, or you had us even call a witness against ourselves. Now, the most gracious part about maybe this whole um, passage is that phrase when he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and here, incline your hearts 
to Yahweh, the God of Israel. I know it was popular in youth groups um, when I was uh, in, in, in high school, college, to talk about being you know, sold out for Christ, right? That was the phrase. I mean, you're all in, you're, you're totally committed to Jesus. And, and of course, Jesus talks about counting the cost of discipleship, laying down your life for the gospel and so on. I'm not trying to say that following God is without a commitment, but I appreciate something like, you know, incline your heart to Yahweh. That really just means turn in his direction. Just, just even do this. I'm not asking you to go the whole 10 miles. Can you even just turn your body towards the racetrack and, and be in the general direction where you're getting closer to the goal than away? Um, it, it's, this is about a trajectory, you know, not that you've arrived at the destination. This is the trajectory of your heart. Aim it towards the Lord. No one makes a commitment for Jesus and is a perfect Christian right off the bat, doesn't wrestle with any sin or have any conflicts or troubles or issues anymore. It's, it's that when we become a Christian, we start that first step. Our heart is bent a little bit more towards the things of God. This is very, very consoling words. It's, it's like when Jesus says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, right? This little tiny seed. What is he asking for? Is he asking for a lot of faith or a little bit of faith? He's asking for a little bit of faith. And, and I, I kind of see it that way. Just like Josh is not asking for much. Just, you know, just get your hearts turned a little bit more towards God. Because, you know, it's if you do any kind of like marksmanship stuff, either shooting guns or arrows or anything, you know that a couple degrees off at the, at the arrow or, or at the, the gun is feet or yards off at the, the target. And that's usually used uh, in a negative way. But the, the positive way here, it's sort of being used, you know, just if you could just inch it a little bit closer to the direction of God, God can use it. God is so gracious that he can take whatever faith we can muster, whatever inclination we can make towards him and, and do wonderful things with it. He's, yes, count the cost of discipleship. Know, you know what you're getting into. Understand that he's asking for all of you when he calls you. But who can say, you know, I became a Christian and I gave him everything. I held nothing back. I just, everything I actually, I did it. You know, I gave him everything and I, you know, I was perfect. Right? But no one can say that. I think more of us to say, I took the step towards him. And I said, I'm going to keep taking that step. I set my heart on a trajectory toward him and I'm going to keep going that direction. It's a very gracious thing to say. And, and I think there's a hope in this response that Joshua's not just completely frustrated at them, but he wants them. He wants them to, to come towards the Lord, even if it seems he's not too hopeful that that's going to be the case. He, it's, it's what he wants. It's what he's holding out for them. And this leads to our, our fifth um, R, which is the rock. And we'll, we'll do this kind of um, fast. But um, so they said, we're going to be witnesses, <laughs> you know, put them down, incline your hearts. Yes, Yahweh, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. If you notice, each time they respond, 
you can see that inclination. Before it's we will also do it, you know, or, or, and then we will do it. They left out the also. And, and now they're saying, no, we are witnesses. We're going to serve him. We're going to listen to his voice. Yahweh, our God, we will serve. So, you know, maybe it is having a little bit of an effect there. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of Yahweh that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And so uh, we have this, um, this uh, ritual or this covenant renewal that he... Um, it says that he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. We wouldn't understand that to mean like he added his own, you know, like I got extra rules for you now. This is almost certainly the same rules that they've been operating on off of the whole time. In other words, the word of God. The, the rock here represents actually the testimony of the word of God, that what's binding them is not so much their words, but God's words. God's going to keep his promise. It doesn't matter what they do because God is faithful even when we're not. But this is their ultimate hope is that if they will just put their trust, not in their abilities, but in the word of God, it's going to be okay. Things are going to pan out. This is a, when it says the stone, listen, and be a judge. It's not a magical stone. It's not like, you know, something out of a fantasy book or something. It's just, it, it just that rock is symbolizing uh, something sure and steady that has heard all the words and is going to hold everybody into account. Well, that is almost certainly synonymous with the word of God, which is that rock, that standard, that immovable, fixed, um, uh, universal law that binds everyone and everything um, that stands as a witness. Everyone is going to be judged by the word of God. For everything you've ever said or done, it will be matched against the word of God. And so in in the same way, um, that needs to be our ultimate touchstone. We, We don't have anything like that at our church. We have this, this is our rock of witness. Everything I say is going to be held accountable to this. And anything I say to you that is beyond what this would tell you or imply is not something God is going to judge you by. My authority extends no further than this book. And my words and knowledge don't surpass anything than what you will find out of this book. And Joshua is making this clear connection uh, to the word of God and that which binds all, all consciences together. Because this book, you know, and there they had just had the first five books of the Bible, but this book is going to outlast and outlive every single one of them. And it's not going to change. It's set in stone, you could say. It's not going to be shakable. It can't be altered, just like a, a rock, you know, you can't edit it. <laughs> You can't go back and and, and fix something. So in that same kind of way, the word of God is going to be the ultimate standard for all of them that will judge all of them. And that's something we can, of course, relate to as well, that I I get so tempted sometimes to um, 
to be very practical about doing things. And uh, that, that happened actually a lot during COVID. And I was very thankful for being in Chris so often um, telling me essentially, well, what does the Bible say? I go, okay, <laughs> you're right. Because that's what you guys are going to hold me accountable to. At least it's, it's what you should. That's what they hold me accountable to. What does the Bible say? Ultimately, that's what God is going to hold us accountable to. Did we believe it? Did we trust it? When it revealed to us our sin, did we confess it? When it revealed to us Jesus Christ, did we say, yes, this is the Messiah? That is uh, ultimately Joshua's hope. It's not that somehow he can continue to lead them. No, it's that he could leave them with the sure rock, the word of God. And here after the cross, we know that um, that rock is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said that if anyone hears my words and obeys them, it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds came and the storms blew, um, it stood firm. So the same holds true for us. Whatever your resolutions are this year, whatever kinds of um, promises you make or don't make, here's one I hope you, we can all agree to, hold each other accountable to, is that we will live by the words of this book and the witness of this book, that we hold each other accountable to what this says, not the opinions of man, not the opinions of pastors, but what God himself has said. And let's make that a a universal resolution um, to last until eternity, until eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for... um, for this book of Joshua, and there's always so much more to be said, but I thank you, Lord, for uh, the ways in which we we do have a mirror here that uh, as much as we might want to um, point out the folly and the sin of of these Israelites or um, share the frustration of Joshua, how can we not also take a moment to look at our own lives, realize our own failings, see that if we were there in the midst of the people, perhaps we wouldn't be just the one that, that was so uh, stalwart and upright in our faith, but maybe we would have been just like what everyone else was doing, in which case, Lord, mercy, show us mercy, show us grace, show us your faithfulness beyond our sin, and show us that in Christ there is forgiveness, even for for the worst kinds of sinners. So thank you, Lord, for uh, being with us. Thank you for showing us uh, who you are in your word. I pray that you'd bless our time of fellowship and the food that we're about to share together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.